uh, Philippians chapter 2. Would you join me there, Philippians chapter 2? Uh, someone saw our handout online, I guess, and thought, wonder if, is Jeff even preaching because we're not in, in Matthew? Uh, we're taking a, a, two weeks now, you've noticed. We've taken last week and this week off, uh, and these are Christmas messages, and today's passage is definitely a Christmas passage. I'll go ahead and warn you, not a warning, just kind of tell you, if you're used to a certain style of sermon, uh, today is going to be less life application on my part, okay? It's going to be less life, like life application. I'm going to be relying, as always, on the Holy Spirit to do that. Uh, we will end up getting theological a bit in the middle, okay? So the life application will come at the beginning, and it will come at the third point. Hopefully the Holy Spirit will do the majority of that. In the middle, we're going to be doing some theology, and I hope that's not a turnoff to you because we believe certain things about this holiday that we're celebrating this coming Friday. And the reason we believe these things is because we find them in the Bible, and we need to know, oh, that's why we believe that. And so I hope you will look at this with anticipation and ask the Lord to speak to you. All right, we're going to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're not going to be able to hit all of it. No one can preach all of this. No one on earth knows the depth of this. It is beyond us. Um, but what we want to do is try to hit some highlights, focusing mainly this morning, verses 5 through 8, uh, but needing to get the context. So here we go. Before I read... Here's some context. We're not in Matthew where everybody knows, okay, we've got, we, we get the flow of the book. This one's different. We're just jumping in here. So here's brief background before we read 1 through 11. This is written by the Apostle Paul. We think around 62 AD. He's, the best we can tell, he's in prison, but really house arrest. It's still prison, but he's renting his own house, chained apparently to some Roman guards who rotate out. He's in the city of Rome. He's writing to the church at Philippi, the Philippians. This is way up in northern Greece. This is the first church in Europe that Paul founded. He had founded churches before this, some after this. This is the first one in Europe, okay? This was in part of the second missionary journey. He crosses from what we call Turkey over the Aegean Sea, and that's where, actually from your direction, it would be over the Aegean Sea. He hits up into a little, a little port city called Neapolis, and then he goes down into Philippi. I got to see the ruins of this a little over a year ago, and so this meant a lot to me as I was reading it this week. Brief, briefly, a little more background. Here's the scene. This, along with the Thessalonians, were probably the main two churches that funded Paul's missionary journeys and his ministry outside of Antioch, right? So we know the Antioch church over in what we call Syria, they funded the initial missionary journeys, but then these two churches, the Philippians and the Thessalonians, seemed to be the main ones that kept his ministry going. Not the Corinthians. Uh, they apparently, Paul never charged them. They apparently weren't nearly as generous as these two churches. And so here he is in prison. They have sent him a care package, some supplies, and, and apparently some financial support. Again, that would no doubt go to helping him have this house that he's renting, though under house arrest, awaiting his trial. He anticipates he'll get out of prison, and tradition says that he does, only to get rearrested. And later on, he will be beheaded, and that time he'll stay in the Mamertine prison, which is a lot worse than this, um, but it appears he gets out of this, and he's hopeful of getting out. The person who brings the care package from the Philippians down to Rome 
is a man named Epaphroditus. So he delivers it. Epaphroditus gets very sick on the way to delivering the package, but he recovers. And so Paul is very thankful for this gift, and he's going to use this occasion to write a letter back to the Philippians, giving it to Epaphroditus because they've heard that he's sick. And so Epaphroditus will be able to show, hey, I survived, I made it. And here's a letter from Paul to let you know how he is doing. And so his main goal in the book is to encourage them, keep progressing in the faith. I'm not down. I'm not sorrowful. I'm extremely joyful. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is continuing, though I'm in prison, verse 1. You ready? Here we go. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love. The idea, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Let me pause right there and go ahead and clarify. The word if, I hope you already sense, he's not saying hypothetically, conditionally, if. The word if here means since, because. Hey, Philippians, if this is true, and it is, then do this. Respond to this by this. And so, apparently, if we were to read the whole book, like if you were to do this this week, like I was able to do this week, you'd get down to chapter 4 and you'd realize apparently there's a couple of women that are starting to be at odds with each other. Paul addresses that in chapter 4. He tells the people around him, hey, make sure they get along. This is not a full-blown division in the church, but the seeds of it are starting. And so Paul is wanting to address that right out of the gate. Verse 2 again. Hey, Philippians, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any comfort from love, and there is, if there's any participation in the Spirit, and there is, if any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Hey, what I started, what the Lord started there. Thank you so much for the care package. Thank you for the financial support. But complete my joy. How? By, he's going to give them four things in verse 2, so be watching. By being of the same mind, complete my joy. You want to really make me joyful? Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Next, he says, by having the same love. Next, he says, by being in full accord. Next, he says, and of one mind. One mind. The idea of going forward with this one mind. Now he's going to give some negatives. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Don't read that. That's actually a very negative thing. It's a, strong, it's, it's a serious sin. This is not like, well, I planned on getting lunch today. My ambition was eating lunch. But apparently, according to the Bible, I'm not supposed to fulfill that ambition. I guess I'm skipping lunch. I was going to give me a sweet tea and have hot chocolate tonight. But that's selfish ambition for me. I guess I'm not supposed to do it. That's not what this is talking about. Verse 3 again, Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything from conceit. The opposite of that. But in humility, count, count, consider it so. Well, what if it isn't true? Consider it, count others. Hey, grace for you, hear this as to us. Grace for you, Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. That is hard. Count 
others more significant than ourselves. What that would look like is verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. We're really good at looking to our own interests. These are my interests. I'm interested in these things. Somebody's got to take an interest in these. These need done. True. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. What mind? Verse 4. I'll go ahead and tell you. Verse 4 is the key to the whole chapter. Everything before it flows up to verse 4. Everything from it illustrates verse 4. Verse 4 is the key. Watch. Let each of you look not to his, only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. This mind, verse 4, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see what he's doing? Think this way. Go through life looking to the interests of others. And you want to see it illustrated? Here's the best illustration he can give you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Think, grace for you, think like Christ Jesus. Here we go. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. So let me go ahead and give you an outline within an outline that you're not going to see on your handout. Verse 6, watch, is pre-Christmas, eternity past, up for the thousands of years of creation, up until the time of Christmas. Verse 7 is Christmas, and those 33 years there, the start of that's Christmas. Verse 8 is going to tell us the purpose of this Christmas. Verse 6, again, back in the eternity past. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He did not count. Hey, we are supposed to count others more significant. Consider it so. Christ did not count. He did not consider it so that being equal with God was a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. Being born, there's Christmas, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. We'll keep seeing this word form show up. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. See, he just continues to humble himself. This is what's told us to be doing in verses 1 through 4. Being found in human form, now we're back in the life of Christ on earth. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. How obedient? To the point of death. Obedient to death. Even death on a cross. And then everything switches in verse 9. Therefore, because of verses 6, 7, and 8, God has highly exalted him. I want you to notice that little pronoun, him. That is a very specific person, very specific person, who has several titles that you're aware of, I hope you're already reading this and saying, I think I know who him is. Therefore, because of 6, 7, 8, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, the name that is above every name, the name. God gives him the name. He bestows it on him. 
Watch verse 10 at the beginning. Why did God bestow this name? So that. That tells me God wants this name used. Since he did that, God bestows on him, the specific person, the name. And because God bestows it, he does it, verse 10, so that, two things. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice three things with me this morning. Spend a little bit of time. I'm going to hit thoughts in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, but we're trying to rush as fast as we can to get to verses 5 through 8. That's the main body this morning. But number one, would you notice this with me? Paul calls for unity through humility. Paul calls for unity. And we don't know the, the, the level, the, of, the degree of division that is starting among these two ladies. But Paul wants to squelch it before it gets out of hand. And he reminds them, hey, you, you Philippians, you keep progressing in your faith. You keep growing in the faith. How? Paul calls for unity through humility. Humility is going to be the key that's going to keep. We can be unified. Things are, are going against us to be unified. But it's possible if humility will reign in our hearts. Look again at verse number one. I've already alluded to this. The word if means since. So if, since, because. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Real quick, everybody listen. How many, what percentage, scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of Christians are in Christ? 100%. 100%. We were in Christ on the cross. He's dying for our sins. We're by faith in Him. He's in the tomb. We're in Him. He resurrects. We're in Him. He's ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We are spiritually by faith in Him. 100%. Next question. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any comfort from love, how many Christians have love? Scale of 1 to 100, what percentage? 100% of Christians have love. Next one. If there's any participation in the Spirit, what percentage? There are actually some people that would give a different percentage here. What percentage of Christians experience, participate in, share in the Holy Spirit? 100%. No, no true Christians are waiting on a second bestowing of salvation. When I, that's when I got the Spirit. Here's where I got saved, and then later on in life, I had this event, and I received the Holy Spirit. No, you got the Spirit at the moment. 100%. He says, if there's any affection and sympathy, what percentage of Christians have, have sympathy and affection from God the Father that causes us to have sympathy and affection for other people? 100%. So if all of those things are true, what, what Paul is saying is, if you really have that from the Lord and it causes you to have sympathy and affection for me and you want to fulfill my joy, then I need you to do the things in verse 2. And there he lists four things. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord in one mind. I want you to listen. We're going to write it in a moment. Watch. Divided churches lack power. And so Paul doesn't want the Philippian church to lack power. I've been in churches. This is not us. I've been in churches that did not have division. And I've been in a church that for a season you could feel the division. I'm telling you, it lacked power. It just lacked power. Going through the same old motions, but it was going through the motions. There was no power there. Division causes a lack of power. 
Paul calls for four things. I'm going to touch them just briefly, but I want you to let the Holy Spirit impact you. I'm not going to unpack it like we normally would if we were focusing on one through four. What's he calling for? Here it is. Philippians, grace for you. Be like-minded. Be like-minded. Find your common ground. Guys, do you realize that because some Christians have been poorly trained or not trained? Watch, this will happen today in America. This will happen today in Anderson County. Someone has been in another church, but their vocation or schooling or whatever has moved them. And so they're going to visit or they're on vacation and they're going to visit with family members or go scout out a church and they're going to go in there and they're going to mainly go in with these eyes. And here's what they're going to be looking for. How do the people there dress? Do they dress more formal than I'm used to? And here's the struggle. If they go looking for that, ooh, they get a little too, they're uppity. They're too traditional. They're making a mental judgment without even knowing those people. Others may walk in and say, they're not formal enough. They're not wearing suits and ties and dresses. They're going in looking with this, looking for what's different in this congregation. Others are going to go in and, how's their music different? Or what kind of English translation do they use? And they're going in looking for tertiary, not primary, third level, fourth level differences instead of focusing on the same mind. Paul says, Focus on your common ground. Don't be fighting about the, the next, the second, third, fourth level things. Focus on the primary. Look at the next line. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have the same love. Jeff, what does that mean? Watch. Don't just love your favorite Christians when you come to the house of the Lord or as you're going through your week. Don't think, oh, I love all Christians, but I show my love to my favorite saints. You know what he's saying? Love all the saints here. Love all. Like determine a choice of my will. I will love all the saints. It doesn't matter how old they are. It doesn't matter how they dress. It doesn't matter how they smell. It doesn't matter what their skin color is. It does, none of those things. It doesn't matter how much money they make or how much money they don't make. I'm going to show my love to all of them. He's calling for full love. Like-minded. And then he says, be, watch, united in spirit and then united in purpose. So again, if I were to use my hands, it would look like this. Same mind. Have the same mind. Have the same love. Have the same unified spirit. Have the same purpose. What if every, what if every Christian in, in each local church, they knew what the purpose, and everyone just gathered and rallied and moved forward for that purpose. That would be a powerful church, not a divided church. Simply put, let me say it this way. We're not going to agree about food. You like this one and you like that. We're not going to agree about shows on TV and favorite movies and music styles and dress. We're not going to agree about that. We're not going to agree about favorite sports teams. We're not even going to agree about politics, and that's fine. What Paul is saying is we can have full unity and full accord if two things, watch, if we will be in tune with, if all of us are in tune with the one Holy Spirit in us, if I'm in tune with Him and you're in tune with Him, we are in tune with each other. And if we'll rally around the fundamentals of the faith of the gospel, once and for all time delivered, if we'll focus on that, oh, then we will have like-mindedness, one-heartedness, one love. would matter about all these other peripheral things. Verse 3, quickly. Do not... Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Those two things I'll touch quickly. I've got to go faster. 
What is this selfish ambition? As I said, it's not, I wanted a cup of coffee, I guess. I won't get that. No, it means this. MacArthur writes, selfish ambition, quote, usually carried the idea of building oneself up by tearing someone else down. Watch yourself. Most of us have done this. Most of us would have to say, I've been guilty of doing this. Some may say, I've been guilty of doing this just recently. Here it is. You've got your shot. You want to build yourself up. You've got your inroad. Everything's lined up. They're not here to defend themselves, so you're going to tear them down. And inwardly, whether you admit it or not, your real goal is to lift yourself up in this other person's eyes. Tearing down to lift you up, Paul says, stop doing that. And then he says, not only that, but do nothing from conceit. The idea here is prestige, vain, empty, glory. Barclay helps us here. He writes the following. Now, see if this is true. This will not be true of everyone, but it's going to be true of some of us here this morning. He writes, prestige is for many people an even greater temptation than wealth. Let that sink in. You say, Jeff, wealth is an extremely tempting thing to probably all of us. It is. But he's on to something. He says, prestige is for many people an even greater temptation. You say, what do you mean prestige? Here it is. To be admired. To be respected. To have a platform seat. To have one's opinion sought. To be known by name and appearance. To be listened to. To have a certain degree of fame. He says those are for many people most desirable things. Did you hear that list? To be admired. Some people are like, money, it's nice. I just want to be admired. I want to be respected. I want to have a platform seat. I want to have my opinion sought. I want to go into the restaurant and hear the buzz. Isn't she the one that, doesn't she run the, isn't he the guy that's over the, yeah, ooh, I love, yeah, that's me. They know it's me. And then somebody else doesn't know that it's you by appearance, like, that's so-and-so. That's so-and-so? Wow. And they just sit and stare as you're, I love that. This is great. Paul says, stop it. Don't do anything. If that happens, that's the Lord's business. Do nothing to cause that to happen. And then the really hard one. Verse 3, at the end. But in humility, count others more significant. I don't have time to unpack this one. Let me just say it this way. Could it be that the most significant people, when we get to eternity, God determines significance. Could it be that the most significant people are those who through the power of the Holy Spirit and the prompting of the Word of God overcame and put to death their natural inclination, their natural sense of entitlement in this life and were able by the help of God to truly consider it so that other people are more significant than themselves. Could it be that what he's saying, you want to know who's going to be the most significant? It's the ones who treat everyone else as though they are more significant in this life. So guys, we get caught up in gifting and talent and appearance. These are the best people among us. These are the best people among us who truly have this mindset. Listen, these are the people that are not easily offended. They're not easily. I'm asking you right now. I said not a lot of life application. Let me ask you an honest question. Are you easily offended? Do you, do you pretty often have problems with people because of what they did or didn't do? If you're easily offended, then you need to stop expecting so much from other people. You're expecting too much from other people. 
What, what Paul is saying is in the power of the Holy Spirit, stop doing that. Start conceding. Well, they got a recognition that I thought I deserved. Be happy for that. In your mind, they deserved it. You know the dirt on you. You say, I know some dirt on them. You know more dirt on you than you know on them. You should. You are you. Right? You should know you. And lastly, verse number four, I said, is the key. Verse four, if we word it this way, it's the overarching main point of entire chapter two. And all that follows, though we're only looking at verses 5 through 11 following this, all that follows is to drive home this point. What is the point? Look at verse 4. Hey, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Guys, looking to the interests of others for their welfare, their good, that's the overarching theme of this chapter. And here's what Paul is saying. We all naturally, all of us, we naturally look to our own interests, but God is calling his adopted children to emulate and imitate his one and only child, his one and only son, by imitating him, by selflessly looking to the interests of others. We look to ourselves. He's not saying that's sinful and wrong. We do have to take care of our own business. I struggle with this. I'm telling you guys right now, I struggle with this. I get, I'm task-oriented. I am very task-oriented. I get on my task. I usually get overwhelmed by it. I feel the clock ticking and the days are going by. I get consumed by this, and it's actually this hour uh, and a few minutes extra sometimes. But it, this right here on Wednesday night, I get so consumed with it. I can find myself not really doing what I should to be interested in the interest of other people. And Paul is saying, that's the key. Be like that. And ultimately what he's saying is, the best example I have to give you, if you were to read the rest of the chapter, Paul humbly says he's an example of this. Philippians, I care about your interests. If you were to look ahead, I, again, I don't have time to preach on this, but it's verse 20. Paul says, I want to send Timothy for, to you because I know no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy cares so much about your interests. And then he says, this Epaphroditus, this guy that was sick, you know why Epaphroditus, he says, he has been distressed. You say, I guess he's distressed because he was sick. No, here's the crazy thing. Epaphroditus is not distressed because he was sick and almost died. He's distressed because he knows the Philippians heard that he was sick and almost died. And they hadn't heard if he made it or not. And Epaphroditus is stressed. They're, they're worrying about me. You ever met anybody that like, they're not distressed because they're sick? Watch, they're not distressed because others aren't distressed because they're sick. They're distressed because, listen, I know you heard that I was sick and I made it okay. I just wanted you to be at ease. We're not like this guy. Paul says he's an example. Timothy's an example. Epaphroditus is an example. But listen, if we were to think, what would verse 4 look like? Paul says, you know what verse 4 looks like. And in case you didn't, he spells it out in 5 through 8. Number 2 this morning. Christ is the best example of humility. Christ is the best example of humility. So notice verse 6. And by looking at 6, are everybody with me? We're going back to before Christmas. We're going into eternity past, and we're learning the mindset of Christ. So when we preach these Christmas passages, some of them are from the perspective of Mary. Some are the perspective of Joshua, or the angels, or Simeon, or Anna. Uh, the shepherds, again, you go down the line, John the Baptist, Elizabeth, Zechariah, we have all these perspectives, these wise men, 
Guys, this is a key passage because if you want to say, what was Christ's perspective on Christmas? Let's go back in eternity past. Literally, what was he thinking? What was in his mind? He's the one that's doing it. Verse 5, verse 6. Who, though he... So we have all this hard, difficult wording. Paul says, theologically, Christ, who though he was in the form of God. So I need to do something I've alluded to a few times. I want to throw it out again. When I quote someone, right... I am not endorsing all their theology. And I've been recently alluding to someone that's had some things brought to my attention that I don't know fully. He's very enigmatic, very confusing, uh, and some folks are struggling that I am quoting this person. Let me say it this way. When I'm quoting anyone, I'm not endorsing all of their theology. And when I'm quoting this person, I'm using them. Some of you have been to the Holy Land, right? When you went to the Holy Land... Israel, Galilee, Jerusalem, you probably had a Jewish guide. Now, some of them are true Christians that have believed in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, but you probably along the way had a Jewish guide that does not believe like we do, but boy, they know the land, and they know the history, and they know their Old Testament, and they know the language. And so you may come back and say, man, that was great. This one guy taught us all of these things, and you use that. That's how I'm using this person, like a concordance or like a Bible dictionary, a handbook. In other words, I'm borrowing this person's historical and linguistic expertise to bring in, and I'm not endorsing all of his theology. Uh, I will not have time to say that every time I use this, and maybe I need to just stop using this. Here's my struggle. This person in these linguistic unfolding of words is like the best that I read. And I want to give you the best. And so I'm going to qualify. Not endorsing all of his theology. Though today, he's, he's on the money. And so Barclay writes the following. Look at verse 6. Look at it with your eyes. Here we have the ESV. The King James that I grew up on worded it differently. Christ, who though he was in. You see that phrase? We're going to get to this form of God. First, we need to deal with what does these, do these words, though he was in. Now, let me pause. Those of you that are here every week and that watch every week, you say, Jeff's doing something he doesn't normally do. He's not a try to come out and tell us Greek words and all of those things. I normally don't do that, but can we admit we're in some difficult wording here, and we need to know what these words mean, and so we need some help. And so we're going to get some help. In fact, I quoted MacArthur a while ago, and I've noticed often he quotes Barclay as well. And it is not an endorsement of him, it's just acknowledgement. He knows what these Greek words mean. Barclay writes the following, catch it. Though he was in. Hey, in a minute we're going to talk about these words, form of God. You say, we know what God, what's this form of mean? We're going to talk about form of in a minute. First, though he was in, the King James words it this way, being in. Barclay writes the following, this word, the Greek word behind this text is used to quote, watch, describe that which a man is in his very essence. You say, hold on, now watch. What Barclay's doing here is saying this word in Greek, he goes and studies how that word is, that word is used in the Greek language and Greek writings and, or about human beings, and he pulls that in. Here's how it's used when he's talking about people, and so here's what he means when Paul uses it for Christ. But first he's got to talk, how is it used for people? Verse 
6. Here's what Barclay writes. He says, this word is used to describe, here it is, though he was in. This is used to describe that which a man is in his very essence. That which, this is important, cannot be changed. That which he possesses inalienably and in such a way that it cannot be taken away from him. He possesses it, it cannot be taken away from him. It describes the innate, unchangeable, unalterable characteristics and abilities of a man. That's how it's used there. And he says this is how he uses it here. This is why he's so strange. This is all I've read all these years is these things. And it's like he drives me crazy sometimes and then he hits a home run. Like in this passage he did this week. He writes the following. So Paul begins by saying that Jesus was essentially, unalterably, and unchangeable God. That's not our note for the screen. We'll get to that specific one in a minute. Right now, all he's talking about, though he was in. Now hit the next one. Form, the form of God. God we know. What's the form? The form. Watch. Same author says, in the Greek language, there are two words that we only have one word. We have the one word form. We have these two words in that language. So he's going to tell us, here's what the two words mean. And then he's going to tell us which one the Lord inspires Paul to use. Here's your two words. Form. We have one word form in English. There's one morphe and one is schema. So we already saw what, though he was, now we're getting ready to see, what is this form? First, let's hear what the two words mean. He writes the following. Morphe means, quote, here we go, the essential form of something which never alters. You're saying, that sounds a whole lot like, hang in. Morphe means the essential form of something which never alters. Schema is the outward form which changes from time to time and from circumstance to circumstance. For instance, the essential morphe of any human being is manhood. By that he does not mean maleness. He means humanity. Back up. For instance, the essential morphe of any human being is manhood, humanity. The fact of his or her manhood is constant, never changes. But a person's schema, his outward form, will continually be changing. And some of you are like, yeah, don't I know it. Schema's always changing. Morphe never changes. You say, Jeff, I'm still not getting it. He spells out the schema versus morphe. He said, watch, a baby, a child. A boy, a youth, a man of middle age, an old man. Did you catch it? A baby, a child, a boy, a youth, a man of middle age, an old man, always have the morphe of manhood. Always a human being. That's a human baby. That's a human child. That's a human boy. That's a human youth. That's a human man of middle age. That's a human old man. So he writes, but the schema changes all the time. The morphe never alters. The schema continually offers. Don't say it out loud. Which one of the two words do you think Paul is using? Hmm. One changes with circumstances. The other is rock solid, never alters. He says, now the word Paul uses for Jesus being in the form of God is morphe. If you're writing notes, let's have it on the screen. This is to say, so here's what this man writes. 
Jesus is unalterably in the form of God. His essence, his unchangeable being, unchangeable being, is divine. Not on the screen, he writes the following. However his outward schema might alter, he remained in essence and in being divine. Can I translate what that means? Whatever the Bible says in verse 7 and 8 that we're getting ready to read, it may affect his schema, but all through he's in the form of God, unalterably, essentially, unchangeably, God. That's what he's saying. Can I just be totally honest with you guys? This is what I thought this week. I'm just a simple person, right? I try to read the Bible, come in here and preach it each week. I struggle with it. Honestly, here's what I'm doing. I think it was Tuesday or so. All right. <laughs> this is me. Knowing I'm going to preach on this. Though he's in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Emptied himself. Took upon the form of a servant. Being in, being in the likeness of men. Being found in human form. Why do you write it like that? <laughs> here's all I'm going to say. If Paul was trying to convey anything other than that Christ is God, he blew it. He blew it. Oh, that's not what I mean. Well, then why did you write it like this? Because though he was in and then the form of God, it's like strong word on top of strong word to get this point across. And it's not going to change. Whatever verse 7 and 8 says, it doesn't change the fact he's unalterably God. Now, what's he thinking? That's who he is. What's he thinking? Verse 6 again at the end. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not. So here's Christ, who's God. He, what's he thinking? Go back in eternity past. He does not think that equality with God is a thing. So equality with God, equality with God, that's not a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? That's kind of difficult. Let me word it this way, and you guys give me the last two words because we're going to write them. I want you to... Help me here. In Christ's mind, in his thinking, his mind, here's what he's doing. He does not think he needs to aspire to be equal with God. Because he is God or already was. Why? He doesn't think equality with God. Now that's something I need to work toward. He doesn't think that way because he already was equal with God. If I could say it this way, I wrote it differently later. So, Jeff, what, what do you think this phrase here means? So, okay, he's, though he was, there's those words, in the form of, all right, we got the, how strong those were. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Could it be one or both of the following? Watch. Jesus does not see, this is important, Jesus does not see equality with God as something that's over there, away from him, that he needs to pursue. I've got a plan. Oh, Father knows my thoughts. I've got to hide him. Everything's good. He doesn't think this way. He's under the Father, and the Father's over there. But if I can just kind of sneak maybe a few of his God credits out of his column, put them into my column, maybe just like one every couple of million years, then after a few trillion years, we'll be even. And one day the Father will look at me and go, hey, 
Didn't I used to be? Oh, no, we've always been. Oh, I thought I was over you. That's not what he's thinking. I don't need that. It's not something that's away from me. I need to go after. Second thought is this. Jesus does not see equality with God as something that he has, but it's loosely, barely hanging on. If you ever let go of this equality with God, you'll never get it back. You better not let it go. You better grasp it and clutch it. You better hang on to it. What this text is telling us is that in Christ, there's no suspicion and threat and jealousy. If I could say it this way, there is no, in Christ, there's no distrust of the Father's motives. Because he knows the Father's plan is for his equal humiliation. This is what we're reading here. Christ never has this, I see what you're up to. You want it all for yourself. And you know, I'm barely hanging on. And if I ever lose it, you'll never give it back to. There is no distrust. It's not something to be clutched and grasped and clung to. Again, if I could word it this way. Christ didn't feel like he needed to clutch it at all costs. What I'm about to say I think is important. In eternity past, he is God. He's equal with the Father. He knows he's equal with the Father. That mentality, that assurance of knowing who he is and knowing what's promised from God frees him up to take a lower place. Listen, for a time. I can take a lower place for a time because I know who I am. And I know how this all ends. And that's going to help me take a lower place because only in that lower place can I go help other people and look to their interests and make a difference. Now, this is actually the third point, but let me go ahead and give it now. If you and I, you say, I'm a Christian, Jeff. I really struggle with this whole thing, counting others better than and looking to their interests. I'm really good at looking to my own. I'm not really good at serving other people. What if, what if we understood I know who God says I am, and I know what God says is going to happen, and because of that, I don't need to have it here. I can take a lower station for a period of time and literally serve other people with my life, let them have the better things, because I know how this thing's going to end. I read verses 9, 10, and 11, and that principle applies to me. So if Christ could do it, I could do it. Let unity reign through humility. Let that mind be in you. That's Christmas. This is Christmas. A songwriter asks, so this is Christmas? No, so this is Christmas. This is Christmas. Verse 7, now we're moving to Christmas. He emptied himself. And those of you, let me grab a quick drink of water. Those of you who have studied Christology... Know that this is one of the ones that people struggle with. What does this mean? Look at verse 7. So he's who he is. He knows who he is. That security of knowing that allows him to take a lower station for a time. So much so that verse 7, he emptied himself. What does that mean? Christ emptied himself. Can we start with what it doesn't mean? You with me? It doesn't mean this. Christ was God. And he gave up being God. He gave up his deity to become humanity. That's not what it meant. Hey, we love him, and he wrote some really good songs. He wrote a tremendous Christmas song. 
But Charles Wesley, hundreds of years ago, wrote a song, a hymn called And Can It Be? And it has a flaw. It's a great song other than this one flaw in that he writes that he, speaking of Christ, emptied himself of all but love. Emptied himself of all but love. That's not true. Right now we're saying what it doesn't mean. What does this mean he emptied himself? It doesn't mean he emptied himself of everything and just kept, just, I'm just keeping the love. I'm letting all of my deity and all of my godness go. I'm equal with the Father, but I'm letting all of that go. That's not what it means. MacArthur writes it this way. Listen, had he stopped being God, he could not have died for the sins of the world. Think about that. If he stops being God, then he's one perfect man. Then you could die for one person. Who's it going to be? Oh, no, no. He doesn't stop being God. MacArthur continues. Again, had he stopped being God, he would have perished on the cross and would have remained in the grave with no power to conquer sin or death. So if I could word it this way, in eternity past, he is God, he's equal with God, and he knows this, that frees him up to then empty himself. So if it doesn't mean he emptied himself of his deity and divineness and his godness, the fullness of God, if that's not what he emptied himself of, then what did he empty himself of? And this is where I realize that most of you know this, but there's somebody here this morning who's like, what does that? They don't know what this means. And so here's why we believe this. Jeff, what does it mean? If you're taking notes, write it down. He emptied himself by laying aside his glory. He laid aside his glory, the full expression of his glory. It was veiled. Here's an important part. The theologians tell us, we don't know who to give this credit to, so I just, I've learned this in the past. I didn't read it this week. But I know this, this is the best we can do to explain. What did he empty himself of? Watch. The independent use of his divine attributes. He empties himself of his glory. He has infinite glory in heaven. He has infinite power, infinite knowledge. And now he comes to earth with veiled glory. There is glory, but it's veiled. Do you see what he did? Do you see what he did? This is awesome. Oh, there's glory, but it's nothing like the glory he had. Did you see the power? Do you see what he's able to do? you see the power in this man's work? You've seen nothing. That is nothing compared to the infinite. But how did he know that? Oh, he knows things. But he's veiled it. Wesley was correct in the other song. The other song, right? What was it? Veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail. The incarnate deity. Mild he lays his glory by. Yes, now that's exactly what happens in verse number 7 in the first part. He's laying aside his glory, the independent use of his attributes, all by doing this. Watch, by permanently becoming a human being. Now that's key. And I didn't quote to you what Barclay writes on that phrase, but because I don't want to give you the wrong thing. So I'm telling you the right thing. Watch. In eternity past, he knows who he is. That frees him up to empty himself of his glory in the independent. He uses his divine attributes as it's in the Father's will. So there are sometimes he knows some things, sometimes he doesn't know some things. Sometimes he exhibits power, sometimes he doesn't exhibit power. He's falling under the weight of a cross, and yet he has this power to do all of these other things. As the Father wills, he uses, he's laying aside his glory by permanently becoming a man, and yet never stopping being God. And that's why we believe that. Look at verse 7 in the middle, quickly. But he emptied himself by taking the form. Oh, there's that word again. 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Keep going to verse 8 at the, at the start. Being found in human form, form of a servant, found in human form. What's going on here? One more time, one last time. Barclay writes the following. See that form of a servant, human form? Watch. He says, the word which Paul uses for form is morphe, which we have seen means the essential form. What Paul means is that when Jesus became man, it was no play acting. It was reality. Oh, he's not like a real man. He's, if, he's, if he's still God, then he's not really, oh no, that's not play acting, that's a real man. Well, he didn't like become a real servant. He's pretending to be a servant. Oh, no. He's acting like a, no, guys, listen, he's a servant. Help me. It's not politically correct. Another word for servant is slave. When you study the life of Christ in the book of Matthew like we've been doing, we are studying the life of a slave, a person who is a slave to the will of God. This is a person who constantly serves people. There's a few times where other people served him. Almost all the rest of that, Martha served, took it too far. <laughs> Calm down. I'm here to serve you guys. He's constantly serving mankind. How? Through his teaching, through his preaching, through his healing, through his feeding, through his casting out demons. He's serving, serving, serving. Constantly. Wearily. All by being a servant, a slave. Poor. Like a poor person. Ready to be born. What does he do? I need to borrow a manger. Going to feed 5,000 males plus women and children. What are we going to do? I need to borrow somebody's food. What, I don't have food. I don't have any food. We need, we got, we got a boy, bring his food over. He's ready to go into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. I need a donkey. I don't have a donkey. I need to borrow a donkey. In the Passion Week, I need to borrow an upper room because I want to celebrate the Passover with my disciples. You'll get it back. You'll get your donkey back. There's your manger back. There's the boy. Get the boy's food back and give him some extra because I made more. I just need to borrow these things. After he dies on a cross, I just need to borrow a tomb. Just need it for like part of three days. They need to borrow. Why? Because you don't have anything. So now we look at the end of verse 7 and on into verse 8. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, being born. So, Jeff, real plain, what happened at Christmas? Because that's Christmas. Born. He emptied, born. You see in the steps? He's God. He's equal with God. He knows who he is. He humbles himself. He empties himself. He comes to earth, watch, as a human being. <laughs> if you're here, way down to being a human being, but not just any human being, a slave human being. And what's his mentality? He's born. What happens at Christmas? Things change. I'm not saying everything changed. I'm saying much changed. Look on the screen, 2 Corinthians. Let me go back over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verse Nine. This is really like a sister passage because I'm going to just touch on it. Second Corinthians chapter eight. Look, at, let me get it right. Verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Say, so, well, Jeff, what happened at Christmas? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Read it again. What happened at Christmas? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That's what happened at Christmas. He was rich, he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So that you might become rich. So here's what happened. The 
infinitely wealthy. When you're rich, you have more than you need. When you're poor, you lack. It hit me this week. We don't understand what's happening here. We don't appreciate it. Because we don't understand self-sufficiency. We don't understand self-existence, self-sufficiency. If we could ever be in a position, if you could imagine a scenario that would go on and on, think with me, to where, okay, a scenario where I would never want another thing, like I would be total, never need or want another thing. I mean, not one degree cooler. Just down one degree. Because I'm very comfortable. I just wonder if I'd be more No, Not one degree warmer. I mean, like, this is, I will never want another. Actually, there is one more food that I kind of, could you bring that? Nothing. Totally sufficient. Totally satisfied. We don't know what that means. He had it. And yet the all-sufficient one brought himself into a position on earth at Christmas where he now lacks. He lacks. He lacks clothes at times. Who's that person? That's God. No, that's a man. That's God and a man. God lacks clothes. He's cold. That's God hanging on a cross. He has shame. He lacks clothes. Who is that? That's the Christ. He has an odor, right? He lacks hygiene. That's God. He's hungry because he lacks food. He's weak. Can't carry that anymore. He's weak. Why? He lacks strength. He's on a cross. He's thirsty. Why? He lacks water and hydration. He's literally on a cross. What happened at Christmas? He's gasping. For air. Why? He lacks oxygen. He's lacking. He's fatigued. Why? He lacks sleep. What happened at Christmas? God became a man. He was still God. Literally became a real man. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman saw him. What did she see? A man. How come you being a man talked to me? By the way, she saw very specifically a Jewish man. How come you being a Jew would talk to me? Being a Samaritan. You don't talk to me. She saw a man. We need to think when we read passages like the storm, that guys that were professional fishermen, the storm was so bad, they literally concluded, we will die tonight. This boat is so being tossed to and fro, they think they're going to die at any moment. And yet Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who's still God, is so fatigued. I get the impression he's like a dish rag. He's just so exhausted. They think they're dying. How can he sleep? He's exhausted. He's exhausted. Again, he cries from the cross that he thirsts. When you cut him, he bleeds. Why? Because he's a man. At his birth. Yes. Some people think that's blasphemy. No. Mary had birth pains. The birth is not the miracle. What happened nine months earlier, that's the miracle. She had birth pains just like every other mother. Why? Because she gave birth to a human child. After being born, Jesus needed wiped off. And yes, Jesus needed diapers. And Jesus needed his diapers changed. Oh, no, he didn't. He got one pair of diapers. And the only time he needed them changed is as he grew. You're, you're out of your mind. This is a human baby boy. You don't let him get his nap. He cried like other little babies when they got tired. You don't let him get food at the right time. He's going to cry because he's hungry. You jostle him around on the back of the animal too quickly after he ate. He spits up like other. He coughs. He sneezes. Who's that coughing and sneezing over there? That's God. What? 
What happened at Christmas? God became a real man and remained God. Verse 8. Verse 8. Being found in the form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's the last steps of humiliation. If you're taking notes, let's write this down. For every person in history, death has been the price for our sin. But for Christ, death was a choice. Say it again. For every person that's ever lived, death has been a wage, a price. I say it over and over. No one on the planet today is 120 years old. Everybody that's that older, older, they've all died. They've all died. Those that are getting close to that, they will die. You and I will die. Why? It's the price for our sin. But with Jesus, death was a choice. So if I could say it this way, Jeff, if verse 7 is Christmas, then verse 8 gives us the purpose of Christmas. Jeff, why did he become a man? Here we go. He's God. He knows who he is. He's equal with the Father. He empties himself, and he's going down in his humiliation. He's taking these lower stations, all aware of what verses 9 through 11 is going to happen. But he keeps taking these lower stations, knowing who he is. Empties himself of glory. Empties himself of the individual use of his divine attributes. He becomes a human being. What a huge step down. Remains God, but becomes a human being. And he becomes a servant of a human being all the way down to this purpose that's listed in verse 8. Why did he become a man? He became a man so that he could do as a man what he could not do otherwise. You say, Jeff, just last week. Now, don't undermine last week's message. Oh, I will not undermine last week's message. I'm here to tell you, when Jesus Christ walked on the earth, he was light. And he revealed what God is like. But that's not the main reason he came. The main reason he came is in verse number 8. His main purpose, his primary purpose to be born was to die. He needed to become a, he's God, he can't die. Why is he becoming a man? Oh, to show us God. Yes, he shows us God and how he teaches, how he preaches. He shows us God, what God is like and how he lives his life. But more than anything else, his primary reason for becoming a man is to die. Quickly look at verse 8. Two more things and then we're going to close up quickly in the verse 9, 10, 11. Being, look at the wording. So notice the timing. And being found in human form. He humbled himself. Are y'all getting what that says? Watch. Verse 6 is eternity past. Verse 7 is Christmas. But now verse 8, the first part there, has us in these 33 years. What's going on there? If I could word it this way, here's what verse 8 to me seems to indicate. Watch. Not only did Christ humble himself in eternity past... He continuously humbled himself all through his life. He continued. Yes, he humbled himself in eternity past to the plan. Mankind is born. We fall into sin for thousands of years. Christ is still on the plan. He's humbling himself, knowing that at the appointed time. Then at the appointed time, he humbles himself. He comes to the earth as a, as a man and as a servant. But even there, he continues to humble himself all the way up until he gives his life to be crucified. Why did that? You remember the garden? Remember that struggle? That struggle was real. So, Jeff, well, I think it's just kind of formality. 
He wasn't real juiced about the cross, but it was a foregone conclusion. Listen, the struggle is real because you may not agree. This is my stance. I wouldn't die for this, but I believe this. It was his prerogative. I do believe it. It was his prerogative to abort the mission at any point. At any point. So, Jeff, what do you mean? No one, no one, I mean no one could make him die. Nobody. You say, well, what about? No, this is God. No one can make him die. Simon can be compelled to carry the cross. Compelled, you'd be forced to carry the cross. No one forced Jesus to die. That's why he says, I lay down my life. You don't take my life. At any moment, it was his prerogative to stop the whole thing. Listen, I became a man. I became a servant. You know what? I'm not doing that. But he embraced the Father's will. Humbly. One more note before a third is this one. The worst part of his humiliation was not just his death, but as verse 8 says, his particular death that was designed by God. You say, Jeff, what was so bad? Oh, crucifixion. Yes, it's the worst physical death of all time. Guys, that's not just it. Yes, it was the worst physical death of all time, but it's what we don't see. Here's why this is such a marvel. God... Equal with the Father, knowing who He is, doesn't just empty Himself. He doesn't just become a human being. He doesn't just become a servant, the lowest of human beings. He doesn't just agree, I will die a physical death. He agrees to die the worst. To look to the interest of others. Here's what He knows. To help Jeff Bartlett and that crowd at Graceview, He who knew no sin had to become sin. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You'll see it on the screen, I believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This was just a page or two before the other that we read a while ago. Paul tells the Corinthians, For our sake he, God the Father, made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He never knew what it was like to be. You understand, this person is God. He absolutely hates sin. He despises it with everything in his nature. His nature is still that of God. He hates sin. He's never sinned. He's never been separated from the Father. And yet... He made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If I could say it this way. He became poor and he became sin itself on the cross. So God the Father could pour out his judgment, his wrath against all of our sin on Christ. So that we can be rich and righteous. He's poor. He was rich and righteous. He becomes poor and sin so that you and I become rich and righteous. Pretty good deal. <laughs> By grace. Lastly this morning, that's not the end of the story. Though we have to fly through verse 9 and 10 and 11. The word humility is in all three points today. Paul is calling for unity through humility. And then he's calling for the example of Christ is the best example, the best illustration of humility. And now number three, this is a principle that is unchanging. God rewards humility with exaltation. God rewards humility with exaltation. Just as when we're studying the manger, we always have to be aware of verse 8, there's a cross. Don't ever lose sight of the cross. 
Yes, today, this week, we're focusing on the manger, but the cross is always in view. But guys, when we're studying the cross, there's this throne that is always in view, even when we're studying the cross. So it's, it's, it's like this. He's here, and he comes down, and down, and down, and down, all the way to where he dies, and he dies on a cross, but then he's resurrected, and then he's ascended, and then God has determined, I reward. God rewards humility with exaltation. Look at verse number 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Somebody help me here. Anybody dare to take a guess? That pronoun him is very specific. I'm going to give you a clue. It's not Christ. Christ is already exalted. Therefore, because of verses 6, 7, 8. Therefore, because of what Christ did in 6, 7, 8. God has highly exalted him. Raise your hand if you think I know. You say, I think I know who him is. Just told you, it's not Christ. It is. Jesus. And you're like, Jesus Christ sent. No, no, no. Christ is here. Jesus is his human name. It's his Jewish name. Jehovah saves. It's the equivalent of Old Testament Joshua. Verse 9 again. Because of what Christ did in 6, 7, 8, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name. The name is not Jesus. That's his name. There's other Jesuses. There's other people. I think I read one time there were 16 Jesuses that were in the New Testament time. Like, what? 16. This was a common name. Lately, after the life of Christ, the Jews kind of banished the name Jesus. They stopped using it. wonder why. They no longer use that name. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is that name? So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is. We'll get to that in a moment. Take this note quickly. God ensures that humble obedience always leads to exaltation. This is a promise from God. He said, Jeff, where do you get that from? Lots of places you're seeing it bore out right here. Matthew 23. Look at verse 12. This will be on the screen after you write that brief note. God always ensures. God ensures that humble obedience to him always leads to exaltation. Here's one of the places. Matthew 23, we'll get to it eventually in our study of Matthew, Lord willing. Look at verse 12. Here's two promises. We should hear this today because it goes right in line with Philippians 2, 1 through 4. This is a a promise from God, guys. You're not going to get around it. Whoever exalts himself, notice who's doing the action. There's active voice and then there's passive. Active means that the subject's doing the action. Passive means that something else is happening, being done on the subject. Watch verse 12. Why am I getting so grammatical? Y'all like, got all this theology, now you're doing grammar with us. Stop it. Verse 12. Whoever exalts himself, that's you and I doing it. God says, you do that, here's what's going to happen. You will be humbled. wonder who's going to do the humbling. Second part of the verse. And whoever humbles himself, what if this person takes the action, we're going to humble themselves, God says, Jesus says, they will be exalted. You exalt yourself. You do that. He'll humble you. You humble yourself. God says, oh, I see everything. I will exalt you. This is a promise. 
You, you exalt, I'll humble. You humble, I'll exalt. Christ is the example. So now we ask ourselves, back to Philippians, what is this name? Raise your hand if you think I say, I think I know the name. Would you raise your hand? What is the name, the name, that is above every name? If you're taking notes, write the following. The name that is above every name that God gave to Jesus is Lord. Lord is the name. As some of us learned Wednesday night, hear me. The primary name of God, the primary Christian name of God is, did anybody, anybody remember that from, Friday, uh, from Wednesday? What's the primary Christian name of God? What's the primary name that we Christians call God? We call him our Father. Hear me. The primary Christian name for God is Father. The primary Christian name for Jesus is Lord. So what makes it the name that's above every name? The name that was used for God in Hebrew language in the Old Testament that the Hebrews inserted for Yahweh, for Jehovah, they would use Lord. In, in, come to the New Testament. God the Father says, because of what you did in humbling yourself in verses 6, 7, and 8, I am bestowing on you the very name of God himself. You are, and insert the Greek word, kurios, you are the Lord. So guys, here's what he's saying. Every time we, the church, call Jesus Christ the Lord, we're fulfilling verses 19 and 11. You do call him Lord, right? He is the Lord. In fact, that confession of Jesus being the Lord is part of becoming a Christian. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I, I don't know that Jesus is the Lord. Then you're not a Christian. Romans chapter 10 you write that note, and I'll be reading Romans 10, listen, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, so it's not just empty words, you're confessing this because you honestly believe these things about Jesus. Here's what the Bible says. So there's a trying to get righteousness by working and keeping the law, and then there's a righteousness that's a faith. God, I can't do it. I need you to give me the righteousness of Christ. How does it happen? If you, Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse number 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is that lordship of Jesus we were talking about the other day when we sold all that we have to get this valuable treasure. The lordship of Jesus is not what saves me, but it always comes with salvation. Well, I'm just trusting Jesus as my Savior. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you are taking him as your Lord. And if you really mean it, your life will show it. Your life will show it. Almost done. Look at verse, uh, verse 9, 10. Look at 10 and 11, actually, of, of Philippians 2. Look at verse 10 and 11. God's bestowed on him the name above every name. That name we know is Lord. It's bore out in verse 10 and 11. Why? So that at the name of Jesus. Guys, let's just finish down the home stretch with these thoughts. So that at the name of Jesus. That'll be. Here comes Jesus. This man. Who is the Christ. The son of God. He's the Christ son of God in eternity past. He became Jesus the man 2,000 years ago. So here comes Jesus in the future. God's bestowed on him the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. So it's come full circle. The reason Jesus isn't distrustful of the Father's plan is because he knows it's for the glory of God. And God loves it. He is glorified. He is delighted to see this honor and this name bestowed. You are the Lord. You the man. You the man, Jesus, who is my son, who is the Christ. You are the Lord. He is delighted to bestow this. It glorifies the Father to put that title on him. Every knee. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? Every knee in heaven, on earth. Under the earth. Imagine. Every believer in heaven that believed the revelation and trusted the revelation of God before the scriptures were ever written. Every, I don't know how many they are, every Old Testament saint. Every New Testament saint. Every church age believer, every tribulation believer, every millennial kingdom believer, all of them, but that's not all. We're still looking at that group that's in heaven. All the holy angels, all these believers of all the ages, all the holy angels, all the people who have not even yet been born, who are going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the holy angels, all of us. What about those who are under the earth? All who are in hell now. All unbelievers who have not yet died. All unbelievers who have not yet been born and died. Hear this. All evil spirits who are right now in the abyss. All demons who are on the earth. That's two different groups. You say, hold on, I, I thought the demons were on the earth. I don't know what the ratio is, but there are some that did something so horrific in the Old Testament, they didn't even get a chance to live on earth. They've been put in the chains of darkness, in the abyss. They will be included. All of them, all of the demons on earth, and Satan himself, everyone who has a voice, everyone has a knee. I don't know if those demons have knees. All the people and all those who have knees, every knee. I'm assuming it's not just going to be one of these. It must be this. Every... Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess what? Jesus is the Lord. The only question, the only question, when will they do it? Everyone's going to do it. You're going to do it. You will bow your knee. Everybody listen to me. You will bow your knee and your tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The only question is will you do it in this life where it changes your eternity or will you be forced to do it later? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in that day will be accepted. So people are going to say, I, I said, Lord, Lord, but they didn't mean it. And their life shows it. But Lord, did we not cast out devils and do many wonderful works? And we preached and prophesied. You said the words. You didn't mean it in your heart. Your life reflected. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You don't get into the kingdom. Everyone's going to Bow. Everyone will confess. Most will do it too late. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Bow your heads just for a moment. I want to invite you. Just check your heart. I'm going to be brief here. We'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. Thank you for your patience this morning. A very thick text. And even then we just skimmed the surface. Can I ask you, can I, can I maybe word it this way? Check your heart. Be honest. Have, are you sure you have become rich and righteous 
in God for eternity by putting your full faith and trust in Jesus' death on the cross as your Savior, but also by confessing with your mouth that that same Jesus is your Lord. And you take Him as Lord, and your life will change when you take Christ as your Lord. Check your heart. Can you honestly say, there's a time in my life where I wasn't believing, and then I started trusting. And at that time, I confessed Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And again, very imperfectly, and I've got a long way to go, but my life changed because I took Christ, the Lord Jesus, as the In this life, I've already done what God promised would happen in verses 10 and 11. I've already done it, and I know that. If you're not sure that you've done that, I would encourage you, talk with us. Meet with me after this service. Pull aside one of our deacons or elders, or do this right now. Bring God into your sphere of awareness. You could do this right now. If the Holy Spirit's convicting you of your sin, then you just bring God into your sphere of awareness and talk to Him, not to me, not to anyone. Not talk, don't talk to yourself. Just talk to the Lord and just let Him know, God, I'm a sinner. I don't want to be one of those who are compelled and forced to confess. I want to do it now. God, I'm a sinner. I need you. I'm asking you, and even this, do this. God, I'm trusting your son's death on the cross to save me. I receive him as my Savior. I take your forgiveness. You've promised it. I take your forgiveness. And yes, I confess. Won't you tell him, Lord Jesus, I confess you are the Lord. I take you as my Lord. Most of us would say, Jeff, by God's grace, I've done that. Then just before I pray, can I invite you to do the following? Can we strive to follow the example of Christ's humility? What if we thought like Him? Stop being so possessive and so wrapped up in this life and demanding our rights and having our own sense of entitlement and being wrapped up in our own things, what if we're like Christ? Like, you know what? I'm going to consider, I'm going to count others more significant than I am. And I'm going to take interest in their things. They have interests as well. I'm, if Christmas means anything, Christ came to die for our sin. But boy, what an example for us to follow Maybe you just need to say, Lord, help me be more like Christ. Help me to think like Christ. Maybe somebody this morning, you say, I need to confess I've had selfish ambition. I literally, I literally had a moment where it was perfectly set up, and I walked through that door. I tore someone else down. They weren't there because I wanted to get what I wanted. I put myself up, and I put them down. And God, I've brought disunity into your family. And God, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Maybe many, perhaps many need to say, God, I aspire. I want to be listened to. I want a position. I want to be looked up to. I want to be famous. I want to be known by name and appearance. And God, it's sin. Help me to take the lower position. And if you exalt me, then you do that and you'll do it in time. But Lord, help me not to live and do actions of conceit and vainglory. Let's look to the needs of others.
if we do, I promise you, by the word of God, God is watching. You say, what if I do thankless service and they never even thank me? They never even know it was me. God's watching. Be like Christ. Trust him. Like, hey, they all got something and I didn't. That's okay. That's okay. If your motive is pure, God will reward you. Father, this text, your word is far above us. And there's no way I can explain it. Father, I thank you for the things that you've shown me this week. And what you've exposed, Lord, is that I've got a long way to go. I'm a very selfish person. I get me focused. Father, I pray that as I consider the sacrifice and the humiliation, the downward steps that Jesus willingly took, help me to be like him. And by faith, know that you will exalt us in your good time, in the best time. So, Lord, let us go forth this week with a mindset of no selfish ambition, no conceit, one mind, one spirit, one love for everybody here, no matter what they look like, one mission to spread the fame of Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for coming. I hope you guys have a fantastic Christmas week, Christmas day. Have a great week.